0: The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: It's Wednesday, July 2nd, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. What does this mean for soccer in America? So asked the headline of a piece by the sports writer Ray Ratto. Actually, that's not the full headline. Let me read the full headline. What does this mean for soccer in America? Who gives a damn? All right, so Death of a Racehorse, the stellar piece of sports journalism from W.C. Hines. This is not... The prose does not glisten. The argument does not hold. The moment remains uncaptured. Ray Rado doesn't like soccer or care about soccer or care about people who cares about soccer. But many millions of Americans do give a damn about where soccer goes, not meaning the sport necessarily. Kids will play. Every high school will have a team. The MLS will offer group discounts for Cub Scout troops. But where does the U.S. men's team go from here? Will the men's team be any better, get further in the World Cup? That's a question everyone is asking today after the team lost to Belgium yesterday. It's a question that's being answered with a lot of hope, a lot of rosiness, a lot of optimism. U.S. soccer has a bright future, ESPN says. Jürgen Klinsmann's youngsters provide hope for U.S. men's national team, says USA Today. Over at Sports on Earth, my friend Will Leach writes, The U.S. lost, but America's soccer future has never been brighter. And one tweet up on the Sports on Earth Twitter feed is this thing. So close, A.W. Gordon with a look at a near miracle win. Stop. There are no near miracles. Near miracles are also known as things that occurred as expected. Jesus makes a step into the water. Jesus falls into the water. That's a near miracle. Water not into wine, but... Water into some more water, that's a near miracle, otherwise known as not a miracle. But I mentioned the Ray Ratto piece up top, because there are two kinds of audiences for a post-U.S. soccer loss assessment. There are those who don't want to hear it, and there are those who want to hear that things are going to be really good. The audience for these pieces are like the audience who just attended a candidate's concession speech. They want to hear, we'll get them next time. They want to believe, we'll get them next time. Well, guess what? We might get them next time, but we might not also. So the results of the tournament were the U.S. advanced to the round of 16, but not the round of 8. Essentially, we're around 12, 13, or 14 in the world. That's how good we are. We had one win, one tie, and two losses in this tournament. That's not great. We survived the group of death, although the English papers called their group the group of death, and they had Uruguay, England, and Italy. Costa Rica won that group. We had Germany, Ghana, and Portugal with a limited star. We came in second in that group, and we looked okay. There are young players who are bright spots, but every team has young players who are bright spots. Consider this. In 2010, the seven players who were 24 years of age or younger on that U.S. Men's National World Cup team, they were all portrayed as young building blocks around which this 2014 would grow. But only Michael Bradley of those seven was a fixture on the 2014 team. Josie Altidore got hurt. I think Jurgen Klinsmann's the right coach. I thought he was wrong to keep Landon Donovan off the squad. I still do. And I think by dint of demographics, the U.S. is becoming more and more a soccer nation. But the climb from the top 16 to the top eight is complicated, not by anything wrong with U.S. soccer. It's just that other countries the countries we're competing against aren't growing into soccer loving nations they aren't building their football infrastructure they're already there and this is the problem with the assessment of how bright the future is with u.s soccer it's that U.S. soccer has to play Brazilian soccer, and German soccer, or even Colombian soccer, or Belgian soccer, or one of the other countries that have top world-class players. Am I a soccer hater? Am I a dyspeptic glass half-empty type? Well, let me tell you, if the glass was half-empty yesterday. It was due to some concerted quaffing of the first half of the glass. This is me. I believe that, I believe that we. I believe that we. I believe, that we! I believe that At a bar we! near Union Square, trying to get my fellow soccer backers going. So yeah, I believe. I believe that we can win, but until we do win realistically, I'm not sure that we will win. On the show today, I will spiel about the media coverage of the killed Israeli teens, who around the world sees what stories, who around the world hears what descriptions. But before that, a long interview. I'm going to give it both segments about an amazing new book that was years in the making. It's about how being a young man in urban America often means that you're being hunted. As an undergraduate at the University of Pennsylvania, Alice Goffman befriended a cafeteria worker and began tutoring her grandchildren. They lived in inner-city Philadelphia, and soon Goffman, a sociology major, was sucked into a different world. From the high school students she'd been tutoring, she got to know young men in their 20s named Mike and Chuck. Goffman soon moved out of student housing and became the full-time roommate of these guys. She joined them as they lived their lives on what Goffman calls 6th Street. For six years, all the while attending college and then graduate school, Goffman, the white daughter of academics, lived in an almost entirely African-American world as an extensive, immersive sociology study. She changed specific names and locations, but the work is deep and resonant. Its title is On the Run, Fugitive Life in an American City. And Alice Goffman joins me. Hello.
0: Hi, great to be here.
1: So when did you start feeling like this was really where you lived?
0: I think I, I started to become more at home just just by being there months and months and people getting to know me. And by the time most people in the neighborhood recognize you, or at least, you know, know someone who knows you or know who you are, then it just ceases to become super weird. And at a a certain point, like white neighborhoods became weird, you know, like if you, like when I started to have to commute to Princeton for graduate school, that was like a real shock to the system because it's just this incredibly wealthy white space, Um, you know, the smells and the sounds and the, the way people talked seemed very strange
1: to me at that point. So what did Mike and Chuck do to earn your trust and vice versa?
0: You know how like a great tragedy can bring people together or like or something, you know, a big event that's out of out of the normal sequence of things. Mm -hmm. And so Aisha's cousin Ronnie introduced me to Mike and he was like 22 at the time and I was 21 and I sort of like needed people my age to be hanging out with. Like I was just spending all this time with high school students and so Ronnie introduced me to Mike and then actually he set us up on a date is the truth. Mm-hmm. He set us up on a, on like a blind date, which went terribly badly. Like I, it was just clear that Mike was not interested in me in the least and thought I was like this total outsider and wasn't doing or saying any of the things that would make me attractive. And we went on this date to the movies and I brought Aisha and some of her friends and he brought his younger cousin Ronnie and some of his friends. and. By the end of the date, I had just done and said so many things that were, like, sort of dorky and very white and weird. And, and, like, at the end of it, he was like, if you ever want any chance with anybody like me, like, you know, you would have to change. And then gave me this really, really long list of things, like, why are you wearing flip-flops in the wintertime? And why are you – you're staring at people for too long, and your hair is not done at all, and why don't you just brush your hair? Could you at least brush it? (laughs) No. It was, like, completely humiliating, and um, we sort of had become friends through that, but then just kind of barely friends, you know? Yeah. But then the police raided his uncle's house in the middle of the night at, like, 3 in the morning. They stormed the house and ripped up everything, and his uncle called him. He had been staying at his girlfriend's house, the mother of his children, actually. He had been staying at her house, and his uncle called there in the middle of the night and said, leave now. They will be there next. Yeah. And, um he was like wanted on a shooting charge, which is a very serious charge, so he became a fugitive immediately and hid out in a bunch of places, including my apartment, for a few weeks until he scraped together the money <clears throat> to pay a lawyer and then and then he was in sitting in jail waiting for this case to go through so that was a big event for me, just knowing someone who who was dealing with something that serious um, and uh and for him, it was a big deal too, although. I would later realize that it wasn't that different from what he usually from, – from kind of how things usually went for him. Like he had had two criminal cases the year before and he was on probation for one and I started visiting him in jail and – um and then he uh, got put in the hole for a fight. I think a fight in the yard, and like which is solitary confinement.
1: Mm-hmm. And then
0: his mother, very worried about his mental state, being in confinement in solitary, uh, scraped the money together to bail him out. Uh, she raised the money with um, from a number of relatives, and we went to the bail office and paid it. And then he came home and spent the rest of the like year and a half of court dates at home that's how we became closer friends, I think, through that court case.
1: Was it from that experience that opened you up to this world of so many people being on warrants and running from the police? Had you kind of known about it intellectually beforehand, but that made it real and opened up? No, to I knew drive? nothing. Yeah.
0: So I had no idea. when this happened to Mike, I thought, oh, this is a totally a rare event in his life and a totally rare event, you know, for his friends and family. And it's just this huge deal. And Uh, The first time we went to court, like his like pretrial date at this local courthouse, like adjoining the police station um, in the 6th Street neighborhood, we we go to the courthouse and he sees another guy who he knew outside and like smokes a cigarette with him and they talk about their cases. And I think, oh, that's so weird that he just happens – to know someone outside the courthouse, and then when we walk into the courthouse, we go to the defendant's side of the courtroom, and he knows like two thirds of the guys sitting there, and he knows the public defenders, and you know, here's the one who, who, um, who defended you know my cousin on this charge, and here's the one who you know you met that neighbor, you know, blah blah blah. He had him for this other thing, and so like that's where. So many young men in the neighborhood were spending their time in this courthouse, and a lot of them were, like, not there for things as serious as Mike's case. They were there for probation violations and for missing court dates and for possession of a very small amount of marijuana, and they were just cased up. They were just dealing with all these legal entanglements. So at that point, I was like, Mike, can I write about your life for my senior thesis at Penn? And he was like, sure, yes. And then I just started asking other of his friends, and— And that became the project that became the next, like, eight years of of my life.
1: I think what you really communicate is... When you have a warrant on you, it dictates so much of your action, and so many people have warrants out for them. So you can't go to an emergency room, for instance, and the whole culture of no snitching. Can you give me an example or two of the sort of action that a middle-class person might shake their head at? Even like a well-meaning middle-class person who's mostly empathetic but says something like, you know, they are making terrible choices.
0: Yeah, that's a a good question. I mean, so you get a low-level warrant for unpaid court fees, for failing to appear in court, um, for technical violations of probation or parole. So drinking, uh, failing a drug test, uh, staying out past curfew, associating with known criminals, being in a neighborhood that you've been barred from being in through the, the dictates of your probation or parole. So there's a lot of kind of everyday things that can Give you a low level warrant. And once you have that warrant, then you become very wary of the normal things that you would have to do in order to do like kind of be a father, be an employee, be a good citizen. So these are communities that are very heavily policed in an arrest based kind of policing approach. And the police are using all kinds of amazing technology to round up people to make their stats either informal or formal. And it it varies by city so like the police are, are there, are watching, the police are, they're at the ER, they will go to a young man's place of employment, uh, his his mother's apartment becomes a last known address, a, a very key place that the police will look for him. So young men learn to avoid these kind of basic institutions that make up our, our lives. They also learn to avoid using any kind of records. So like, uh, you don't want to, you know, you don't want to pay with a card if you even could get a card. Um So one thing is is just going to the ER. And I should say it's not just people with warrants. It's also people on probation, on parole, who have a pending court case. Once you have any kind of legal entanglement, you become worried that if the police stop you, they will charge you with a violation. You will be – it's this sort of looming fear of capture, this fear of like at any moment they could take me and I will be back in custody or I will be sent to jail. So you're avoiding the authorities and all the places that they are looking for you or people like you. Um, So a story – so like – so we were, like, shooting dice on the wall of the elementary school, and um, and it was me, Chuck, and Alex, and Mike. And Alex is a guy who was working for his father's heating and air conditioning repair shop, mm-hmm. and he was serving two years of parole after a drug case um, that he had already gone to prison for. And he was, like, very close to completing his parole. He was, you know, doing everything right. And so we were we were playing dice late at night, and it got later and later, and— and uh, and Mike won. He always won when we played dice. So Mike and I went off to get cheesesteaks with his winnings. And then on the way to the cheesesteak store, Mike gets this call on his cell phone and I hear it ringing and then he picks up and I can hear screams on the other end. He screeches this old Lincoln around and we drive back up to the corner store and there we see Alex squatting by the curb looking for something and when he looks up at us i can see blood streaming down his face and onto his t-shirt and his pants and boots Mm -hmm. and i realize that he's looking for his teeth that have been knocked out so i like get out of the car and start looking on the ground for his teeth and his face is just really badly smashed in you know it's like clearly broken in lots of places there's blood everywhere i'm like alex we have to go to the er like you you need to go to the hospital immediately and he just refuses, and I keep pushing at him, and, and finally Mike is like, he's not fucking going, so stop pushing. And then I realize, oh, right, Alex is on parole. There's no way that he – he's just totally determined to finish his parole. There's no way he's going to go to the hospital and risk a violation just to patch up his face. Yeah. So – We get him into Mike's car. We take him back to the apartment, the apartment that that I'm sharing with Mike and Chuck. And then Mike and Chuck spend like four hours on the phone trying to find someone with basic medical knowledge who can come and stitch up and examine Alex's face. And finally, Alex gets in touch with his cousin who's studying to be a nurse's assistant. And she had like a few weeks into this program. And she comes over with this bag full of needles and iodine and gauze. And pronounces that his jaw and chin are broken and there's nothing she can do about that. But she sews up his like around his eye and around Mm. his his jaw. Um, So like he still this is like more than 10 years ago now. He still doesn't. He speaks with like a muffled lisp and his eyes are not set at the right level in his face. But he didn't go back to prison. He finished his parole.
1: And had he gotten in a fight, how did he lose the teeth?
0: Oh, yeah. So he had been pistol whipped by a guy who had walked him into – well, what Alex said is that the guy walked him into the alleyway, yeah. took his money, pistol whipped him three times, and then smashed his head into the concrete wall. And the guy apparently thought that Alex was his brother who had apparently robbed this guy the week before. But
1: And just him being out that late is what would have Right. Uh, exactly. Exactly. It wasn't that he was yeah. a crime victim. Yeah, I get that. Okay. Yeah. So I'm sure – there's a number of people listening saying terrible circumstance can't be the case that everyone who has, who's on probation or on parole got busted on a really low level drug charge. There are some serious crimes there. Um, Maybe people don't realize actually how pervasive the low level drug charges are, but do you think it would be better for the police to ease up? Obviously the best solution is to have more rational drug rules, but Aside from that, what policing strategies do you think would be best to serve this community and get them working and get the economy there humming along and, you know, eventually elevating the entire neighborhood out of the uh, ongoing poverty cycle of poverty that it's been in?
0: So there's a level of violence, of serious violent crime in a neighborhood like this that definitely eclipses what you see like in like, for example, on Penn's campus where I was Shuttling back and forth, you know, for class. On the other hand, the thing that got the young men I knew started down this path of legal cases and probation and parole that made it really hard to kind of live a normal life. They were pretty much exactly the same things that the young men that I was meeting on Penn's campus were doing. Just with total impunity. So um, it's like small drug stuff, you know, like yeah. small drug stuff.
1: Doing some drugs, getting in a fight, drinking a little too much, all that stuff. What, we, what 18-year-olds do, yeah. Uh,
0: Tim is Chuck's younger brother. So Mike and Chuck are best friends. And Tim is Chuck's younger brother. And his first arrest came at age 11 when he was stopped in a car that his older brother was driving. So Chuck was driving Tim to school. The cops pulled him over and um and charged and ran the ran the car and it came up as stolen in California so this was like a car that chuck was borrowing from his girlfriend who maybe it was her uncle's like he had no idea who had stolen it or whether someone had bought it and it had been stolen like at an auction who knows right mm-hmm. um but the car is stolen in california chuck had never been like outside of the tri-state you know but so he's charged with receiving stolen property they bring both brothers down to the police station they charge chuck with receiving stolen property and they charged him with accessory to receiving stolen property at age 11 so then he's on probation for three years the thing that that got Chuck really started uh, down this path was he made it all the way to um, to his senior year with no convictions um, and no real jail time. But then his senior year, he got into a fight in the schoolyard with a young man who called his mom a crack whore. And yeah. he, like, pushed the other guy's face into the snow and neither Chuck nor the other student were badly injured, but the school cops charged Chuck with aggravated assault. So then he had this aggravated assault case he couldn't – and he was 18, so he was put into um, the adult system, into county jail, while he waited for this trial the, – for the trial to start, which took, a, which took eight months. So he was sitting in county for eight months awaiting these charges – And so he lost that senior year of school. The charges were dropped. He was released. Most of them were dropped. He had to pay court fees of like a couple hundred dollars. So he came home after his senior year, after having spent all of senior year in jail, tried to re-enroll the next fall as a senior. But the school was like, well, you're 19 now. So, you know, tough. So then he was a high school dropout. And then he couldn't pay the court fees. Um, he couldn't afford them. So then he had a, a bench warrant. So then he was like a high school dropout on the run um, from this fight in the schoolyard. And like, you know, t- lots of guys that I grew up with um, in this like middle class white neighborhood in Philly had been in fights in the schoolyard and lots of Penn guys too were in fights like in their frat parties. Yeah. But they didn't become aggravated assault charges. You know, this is what happens to, to black young men, poor young men. So it's those kinds of things that make you think there's like some real injustice here, I think.
1: Given the set of circumstances that I think a lot of people are looking at these drug laws and saying they're very draconian, it leads to what you're describing different white suburban kids getting a fight. It's a fight. black urban kids get in a fight. they go to jail. But what should the police do? What should the police do with warrants and how aggressively should they should they pursue it? And we're talking about when there's a serious crime involved,
0: yeah. so like by the time I got to this neighborhood, um, the first year and a half of field work I I spent in the neighborhood, I was writing notes every day. And during those 18 months, I saw the police stop pedestrians or people in cars, search them, run their names for warrants, ask people to come in for questioning or make an arrest every single day with four or five exceptions. So, like, that's just in a four or five block radius. So I saw the police break down doors, search houses, chase people through houses 52 times in the first year and a half that I was there. Um, I watched the police punch, kick, stomp on, beat with their nightsticks, strangle young men as they after they had stopped them and arrested them 14 times in the first 18 months. So we're talking about a level of policing and a level of arrests and home raids and a level of violence from the police that is just – unbelievable to to people living outside of neighborhoods like this. We could have a totally different role for police officers in communities like this, like their, their job doesn't have to be to arrest people as like, uh, as like basically the only solution. They could be mediating disputes. They could be helping people solve problems. They could be connecting people to social services. They could be trying to support young people in all of the challenges that they face. And there are many, you know, like these are already neighborhoods that are dealing with poverty and violence and, and crime and unemployment. And, you know, the, co- the police could be a sort of steadying force, not this kind of looming threat of, of arrest.
1: Alice Goffman, author of On the Run Fugitive Life in an American City. Thank you so much, Alice.
0: Thanks a lot for having me. It was really great talking to you.
1: And now the spiel. Earlier this week, the bodies of three missing teens were found in Israel. Ayal Yifra, Gilad Shar, and Neftali Frankel, 19, 16, and 16, have been on the minds of every Israeli since they went missing on June 12th. And the discovery of their bodies set off reprisals from Israeli authorities who bulldozed the homes of the two main suspects in their murder. They were followers of the radical group Hamas, which is now in a power-sharing agreement to run the Palestinian Authority. Mahmoud Abbas, prime minister of the Palestinian Authority, is a member of Fatah, not Hamas. He said at least humane things upon news of the kidnapping and the discovery of the bodies. He expressed condolences. He decried murder. Doesn't seem like a huge step, right? Hamas instead praised the kidnapping while they did not take credit. The praise was a fact often left out of reports on this story in media that's disseminated throughout the Arab world. In fact, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to monitor some of the media around this story because it represented to me some choices. A newspaper or TV station could either empathize with the tragedy, could focus on the crying mothers and show pictures of the boys, or they could feel the need to point out that Palestinian youths have died in the days since the kidnappings. This is sometimes criticized as false equivalency. I will say that purposefully kidnapping and shooting to death three teenagers is different from returning missile fire or shooting a person holding a grenade. How different? To answer that, I will quote Brett Stevens, a former editor of the Jerusalem Post, a columnist for the Wall Street Journal. He's not soft on Israel. And he writes, to kill innocent people deliberately is odious, to kill them accidentally or collaterally is at minimum tragic. So the media have a choice, how much equivalency to make. Media have the choice of how much to humanize the kidnapped boys. Media always have the choice of how to define context. Al Jazeera, the pan-Arab television station in Arabic, covered the news of the body's discovery with a panel discussion that asked, will Israel use this as an excuse to ramp up attacks in Gaza? This program, behind the news, discussed the political dimensions of the Israel military operation, quoted a Hamas spokesman who said the story of the disappearance and killing of three Israeli settlers relies solely on the Israeli narrative to justify the aggression against Hamas and the Palestinian people. Al Jazeera also has an outlet, Al Jazeera America, and Al Jazeera America did note of Hamas, the group praised the kidnappings, but never claimed responsibility. Also on Al Jazeera America, you could find the kidnapping victims named. You could see their pictures. You could see them smiling. But you could also read on the Al Jazeera America website and here on their air references like, The settlers disappeared on June 12th while hitchhiking home from a religious school in Kavar Etzion, an illegal settlement between Bethlehem and Hebron. U.S. media almost never used the phrase illegal settlement in describing the incident. Here's Al Arabiya referring to the victims as the settlers, never as the teenagers or the boys. This is the Pan Arab Satellite Station. This is their coverage from the moment the news broke of the discovery of the bodies. And here's some of what their reporter is saying. We've been reporting that the occupation forces were searching for bodies and not settlers alive within minutes it was identified that the bodies are those of the settlers and that it happened almost two and a half hours ago. Since the first day we were saying that the settlers were found dead, Israel may respond as if an attack on the settlers that led to death and not a kidnapping. Another common trend in coverage of the kidnapped Israelis, and this is a trend on Al Jazeera America, but it's also true of the AP and many Western newspapers, is to note Teenaged Palestinians who'd been killed by Israeli forces during the weeks the search was going on. Al Jazeera headline Funeral held for slain Israeli settlers. Subhead burials held for three young Israeli settlers who disappeared weeks ago, as well as for Palestinians shot by Israeli forces. Shmuel Rosner, political editor of the Jewish Journal, lives in Tel Aviv. He says Israeli media have been separating the stories of the three kidnapped teens from the stories of even young Palestinians who die clashing with security forces. The Israeli
0: media tends to uh, uh, separate incidents of
1: accidental death of people because of the ongoing war between Hamas and Israel and the uh, cold-blooded murder of of innocent people. It is true that
0: innocent Palestinians are hurt because of uh, action taken by the Israeli military, but the the Israeli press tends to separate uh, these two very different uh, types of, of uh, violent uh, death.
1: I did find, however, a reference in Haaretz by the opinion writer Gideon Levy, who wrote, the world has no reason to be more interested in the fate of Neftali Frankel, Ayal Yefra, and Galad Shar, those are the Israeli teens, than it is in the fate of their age mate, Mohammed Dudin, a boy of 15, who was killed by live fire from Israeli soldiers in Dura." But now, there may be a recent tragic example where the false of the false equivalency charge doesn't even come into play. The body of an abducted Arab teenager, Mohammed Abdul Qadir, has been found. The New York Times titles this development, Tension mounts after apparent revenge killing in Jerusalem. Other U.S. outlets are more cautious. Revenge killing? Burned body of Arab teen found. That's the title on NBC.com. And even in Israel, the media is questioning, and in many cases assuming, that this is a revenge killing. U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry has decried this killing. The White House has called for temperatures to cool. It's unlikely that that call will work, especially when tensions are fanned in ways both subtle and overt by the very words, images, and facts that the world's media are disseminating. That's it for the show today. Andrea Salenzi left it all out there in producing today's podcast. She couldn't have given it any more. The longer Andy Bowers keeps you in the game as executive producer of Slate Podcasts, the more you hope. Let's get some breaks and go forward and find our own chances. You can subscribe on iTunes. Please do. We encourage you to do so. Even give us a review. Get a daily email from us and sign up for that email at slash gist email. We're on Facebook.com slash gist and email us at, thegist at slate.com. You know, the experience of the last seven weeks, every little piece plays a role in building a successful podcast. I think we learned a tremendous amount. I think we all went to our limits. I think we gave everything we had. Thanks for listening.